Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I want to remind everybody, first and foremost, to go to WealthFormula.com and make sure you download the special report on how to save thousands of dollars in taxes that I think you will find very useful. And also remember, there is an entire website there of basic financial information, which I think is really important in order to understand and navigate this financial world that we live in. You know, none of the things that you hear are really that difficult to understand. It's just a language you have to learn to play the game. So make sure you do that. Go to WealthFormula.com. And also, if you like this show, give me a review on iTunes so that other people know that it's a show worth listening to. And also share it with your friends if you have an opportunity. These are all ways that we can build our own community because it is with larger community that we're actually going to be able to create increasing amounts of leverage on this show and get even more opportunities come our way. So that is the entire philosophy behind Wealth Formula Podcast is to create a community that we can leverage and create better opportunities for ourselves. Now, today we are going to do a show that's another Ask Buck show, and um, this is the show, me, Buck Joffrey, uh, will answer the questions from the audience out there, and it's a great opportunity for me to get a sense for, you know, what some of the questions are, you know, what the types of things that I can answer that I'm not necessarily answering. It's not like I know all of the answers, but it gives me an opportunity to at least tap people in my own network to try to get some opinions. So as a reminder, you can go to wealthformula.com and click on the Ask Buck button there, and that's where you can leave me questions. And typically I'm going to do this about every month, uh, maybe every six weeks or so like we did this time. So let's start with the first question. Do you mean that there is uh, no need to be highly knowledgeable to understand these financial jargon as it sounds. I think the question is actually related to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, and that is there's a lot of terminology out there, 
when you go to your wealth advisor, when you go to your financial planner, when you talk to people who are of the Wall Street variety, there's a lot of jargon. And I believe that that jargon is actually meant to confuse you. But it's a language, okay? It's a language. It's nothing difficult, right? I like to think about it as the same kind of concept, uh, the old story of the pretty young girl going into the mechanic and saying, well, what's wrong with my car? And the mechanic you know, lists off a bunch of different things and says, well, you're going to have to do that. Well, you know, this is wrong with your car and and you're going to have to pay for this and that and so on and so forth. Then, of course, the young girl doesn't know anything about the car. So she says, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it. So here's the money and please fix my car. That's the way, in my view, Wall Street and financial advisors are when it comes to money. They want to code things uh, that are fairly simple in order for them to sound more complex and therefore make it less likely that you'll ask them the questions. Because after all, who wants to look stupid, right? We're highly trained professionals. We're people who pride ourselves on having a certain expertise. And it's not easy to say, hey, uh, can you tell me exactly what that means? And most of the time, we're not going to do that because of that intimidation factor. And what we want to try to do is take out that intimidation factor. So, The answer to your question is, it's not that you don't need to know or be knowledgeable in the financial jargon. You do need to know what the financial jargon is. My point is that it is important to self-educate yourself because financial jargon is just that. It's a language. You speak a language, and sometimes it's it sounds complicated, but it's not. Here's a good example. So I hear about, uh, you know, whenever you talk about, talk to finance guys, you hear them talk about basis points. Well, you know, here and that, and then there's 50 basis points. Well, what the heck is a basis point, right? So, so all a basis point is is it's like a, you know, a uh, you know, 100 basis points is one percent. Right. So 50 basis points is a half percent. So that's all they're saying. When they say 50 basis points, it means a half a percent. So what, you know, why not just say a half a percent? Well, because then you might understand it. That's why. And also, obviously, there are just, you know, with every profession, I'm a physician. We have our own language as well. Right. But it doesn't mean that things are necessarily complicated. It just means you need to learn the language. And that's what you know, the website is for, that's what this show is all about, and it's incumbent on you as somebody who's taking your personal finances seriously to learn it. Because as I've said before in in a previous podcast, I think we're in times right now that if you don't take those steps to educate yourself, you know, you could end up one of those high-paid professionals dying broke like I talked about on, I believe, the last show. So next question. So what do you think of gold? And this is a very good question. I don't talk that much about gold on the show, although I wouldn't call myself a gold bug. I, I would call myself somebody who has understood the value of gold over time and sees value of having it in my portfolio. Do I have a ton of it? No. I mean, if you talk to Jim Rickards, he'll tell you that he thinks that you need to have 10% of your investable assets in gold. I don't know if I believe that or not, but what I will tell you is this, that Gold is, in my view, not an investment, okay? Real estate is an investment. Uh, Energy is investments. Gold is money. So why do I say that? Well, think about it this way. In the case of gold, right? So an ounce of gold 
in ancient times would buy you a fancy toga. Okay, if you're going out to a party or something, you get yourself a fancy toga for an ounce of gold. And if you look at the value of an ounce of gold today, it'll get you a fancy Armani suit. Now, I don't have an Armani suit, but I believe we're talking about about that same, uh, you know, couple thousand dollar value that a toga uh, would have cost in gold money. So at any rate, the point is that I view gold as money, and I also view it as the anti-dollar, okay? It is a, a type of money that when the dollar becomes weak, it actually gets stronger. And you're seeing that right now because everybody's anticipating that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates in December. And as a result of that, you're seeing the dollar getting stronger because that's what happens when rates go up. And now you're seeing a little bit of dip in the price of gold. Okay. Now, I would caution you that if you're buying gold, I really wouldn't buy gold with the intention of, you know, selling it as a speculator. I would buy gold and then I would sit on it for a very, very long time uh, just as a reserve of money. Because I think if you look at gold as money, you know that it's had a similar value, as I mentioned, for over 10,000 years. And it's a good way for you to create capital preservation, which in times like now, I think is critically important. Now, I want to stress that I'm talking about physical gold here because there is lots of different kinds of ways to invest in gold. You can go in, invest in GLD, which is, you know, the it's some sort of ETF for gold, or you can invest in a number of gold uh, stocks out there for gold mines and things like that. Now, those are, you know, they have their own value, and I'm not saying, you know, don't do it. I'm just saying that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about physical gold. Physical gold is money. And the way you buy that is a little different than buying stocks. Now, you could keep it in your house. I don't necessarily recommend it, and I don't do myself, uh, but there are ways to do it. One company that I use actually is called Bullion Vault, and I found them to be very useful. I just noticed it was not on my resource pages, which I will try to add that. But basically what it does is it allows you to buy gold on the Internet and store it in places like Switzerland, Canada, if you want, in New York, whatever. And so I think it's a great little tool, and the fees are not terrible. So check out Bullion Vault if that's of interest to you. So let's see. That's pretty much what I have to say about that question. Another question, the question is, well, why do you say that an inflation is inevitable? I'm hearing from others that they think we are in deflation. I'm not saying that we're not in the middle of a period of time when deflationary pressures are strong. In fact, that is definitely the case. I mean, if you look at it, I read an article recently that said that the cost of food was going way down. And uh, as we know, energy prices are low. Oil is low, very low compared to a couple years ago. These are clearly deflationary pressures. And if we let the economy work the way it's supposed to work, which means uh, not intervening with monetary policy with the Federal Reserve, we would almost certainly have deflation. But here's why I don't believe that that's what's going to happen in the long run. I believe it's not going to happen because of a simple fact. The fact is that the economy right now is growing at maybe 1% per year at best, and it's really sluggish, okay? The national debt is growing, 
And it was like, what, $19, $20 trillion now. And just like any debt, there is, you know, we have to pay, we have to pay for the debt. We have to pay for the interest on that debt. And the only way that we have to do that is through taxation. Okay. Now, if the economy is only growing at 1%, but the national debt is growing significantly more and our interest payments are rising faster, then we really only have two choices, right? We can, well, we have more than two choices, but the main two choices are either we default on our national debt, right? Our interest is going up faster than our tax revenue. So we default on our national debt. Or the other option is, we artificially create some kind of inflation so that wages go up nominally and we can tax our way into paying off our debt. So, for example, we may only have a real growth of 1% per year, but if we are able to crank up inflation by printing money, by helicopter money, by artificially continuing to suppress interest rates for longer and longer, we might be able to get the inflation rate up to, say, you know, 4%. So 4% inflation plus one nominal would be a 5% growth of the economy. Now, 5% growth of the economy, even though that 1% is real, would actually allow us to continue to pay off our national debt. Now, I actually think that this is probably what's going to happen. And so I think it's really, really important to prepare for that. So for me, it's not really just speculation, right? I think inflation is inevitable. And I think there's a good chance that we'll have hyperinflation. If you look back into the 70s, even, you know, with the oil crisis and everything, we had something like 50% inflation in a matter of five years. I mean, this is stuff that there's plenty of precedent for. And I keep hearing people saying, well, this is not Zimbabwe and this is not, you know, third world countries where hyperinflation happens. Well, I agree. I don't think we're going to get you know, I don't think we're going to turn into Weimar Germany and, you know, walk around with uh, barrels of dollars to pay for a gallon of milk. But I think that the double digit inflation times are almost inevitable. It's almost the only way out for us to be able to pay down our debt. And therefore, it's important. So what can we do in order to hedge our bets? Well, we've talked about this on this show many times. So it's sort of a if you can't beat them, join them approach to investing. The worst thing you could do in an inflationary environment is just to keep your money in the bank, right? Well, let's go back to our example of 1% real growth in the economy, but then you've got, say, 4% inflation, we said, right? So so if you had 4% inflation, but you were getting less than 1% interest uh, from the bank on the money that on your deposits, you're actually losing money, right? In real money, you're losing about 3% per year, not gaining 1% because inflation would essentially devalue your money. So what we want to do is we want to invest our money in places where inflation is going to have an impact. So what happens when there's inflation? Rents go up. People have to live somewhere. So what do we do? We invest in real estate. You know, energy prices go up. So what do we do? We invest probably in oil and gas, not anticipating in necessarily a overnight rise in prices, but in reality, I believe that it is inevitable for oil prices to go up. Alternative energy, that's another place. Energy, we have to have energy, and energy prices will go up. Fundamentally, when you calculate inflation, energy values are there. Food, 
fine art. These are things that are all affected by inflation, and that's where we ought to be putting our money. Now, again, if you look at gold in that equation, gold as it is, as I've called it, the anti-dollar, if there is hyperinflation, you will see significant increases in the price of gold. So effectively, that's what I believe. That's why I believe there will be inflation. And even though there are current deflationary pressures, I believe that the Federal Reserve will do everything it possibly can to make it so that deflation does not prevail because we simply can't do it. Because if we do it, we'll default on our debt. So hopefully that answers that question. Okay, next question. This is the last question here. Do you believe all debt should be paid off before investing? It's actually a really good question. As you know, there's good debt and there's bad debt. You know, Robert Kiyosaki talks about that, right? So bad debt is the kind that you put on your credit card, you buy a pair of shoes or you buy, you know, some, you know, some really fancy watch or an Armani suit or something like that. Luckily, I don't have those kinds of tastes, so I don't generally put a lot of money on my credit cards like that, okay? Now, that's bad debt. It doesn't give you any value, and you're just losing money on top of the silly things that you already spent your money on. So that's bad debt. So I think you got to pay those off. When I was a resident, or when I finished my residency, I had a bunch of credit card debt. One of the ways that I figured out which ones to pay off first was by calculating a return on investment. It was very theoretical, but I, it made me feel good about paying off debt. So for example, if I had a credit card that I had $5,000 on and I had a payment of $100 per month, uh, what I would think to myself is, okay, well, if I paid this $5,000 off, then I would save $100 per month and that would be $1,200 per year. I know it's, it's not quite that way, but that's the way I would think about it because I'd only pay off the uh, interest typically. So that would be $1,200 over 5000 Now, that's actually a pretty darn good return. So that's a good way to think about it. So that's how I would pay off my credit cards. Now, good debt, I am actually a big believer in good debt. The good debt is debt that helps you make more money. Okay, now, so the classic example of good debt is uh, mortgages that you take out on investment real estate. When you take out a mortgage on investment real estate, it actually increases your return on investment. It does something else, too, which is really important in the case of real estate. We've talked about it on this show before, but one of the magics of investing in real estate is that you have something called depreciation, right? So the government allows you to write off a certain part, a certain percentage of your property per year over 27 and a half years, typically, that essentially takes value off of your real estate and lets you write that value off. So Say on a, if you had a $4 million property, say your depreciation was, you know, $40,000 per year. I don't know if that's right or not. If you made a certain income from that investment property, but the depreciation value was greater than the amount of income from that property, you effectively have a loss on paper from that property. Okay. And what that means is the income that you made from that property is tax-free. That's really only going to happen if you use a debt, if you use a mortgage, okay? If you don't use leverage on your real estate, you could very well end up paying a lot more taxes than you need to. So we had a guy on the show uh, not too long ago who you know had a great business in terms of buying rental real estate, mostly houses, and his goal was to pay them all off. 
Now, my personal view is that I wouldn't do that. And the reason, again, is if you pay them all off, you might increase the income you make, but you're going to all of a sudden start paying a bunch of taxes on money that you never had to pay taxes for. All right, so that's good debt, right? Good debt makes you makes you make more money, makes you have a higher return on investment. I think where it gets sticky is when you start talking about like, okay, how about your home? Your, you know, your personal place with a place where you live, uh, should you have a mortgage or should you try to pay that off? I think this is a little trickier and it gets a little bit more complicated. Now, obviously your house is not something that puts money in your pocket. And by Robert Kiyosaki's definition, that is not an asset. It's a liability. And presumably, you don't want to have liabilities. But here's the thing. If you own a house, say you bought a house for $100,000, you put a 30-year mortgage on it. So you have 30 years to pay that off. If you really did wait 25 years or 30 years to pay, say you paid 25, you you waited 20, 25 years later, that $100,000 house is probably going to be worth a heck of a lot more. And not only that, but inflation over that 20 to 25 years is going to make the amount of money on that mortgage pretty much meaningless. And therefore, I think, in my opinion, although I go back and forth on this, it makes a lot more sense to keep that kind of debt around than it does to pay it off. Now, obviously, it changes a little bit if you are living way over your means. I mean, if you're paying 60, 70% of your monthly income to your personal residence. Well, I think the big thing is you got to get it down to, you know, something that's a lot more manageable. And then you can think about leveraging. So just because I say I think leverage on a house is something that generally I would say is a good thing, even for your personal residence, I would say that you have to make sure that it is something that you can easily afford. Otherwise, you'll get yourself in trouble. Anyway, I think that's uh, about all the time we have for questions today. Now, again, I do want to remind you uh, to you know take advantage of the wealthformula.com site. You can go there and you can ask questions for the next show. You can click on Ask Buck. And also you can go to a tab called Invest With Me. Now, this doesn't mean going to be you know giving me money or something. What it means is that we are building a uh, community of people Uh, here on the show. You've heard a number of my colleagues and people I trust on the show already. But what we're trying to do is trying to to create a more intimate community where we can communicate with one another. And if you click on invest with me, we can have a conversation about where you're at and what your goals are. And I can share with you a little bit about more about what I know, a little bit more down in the weeds. So you can go to that, the invest with me tab, And, of course, there's the special report, which I talked about before, and who doesn't want to save thousands of dollars in taxes. Finally, the show has some very loyal listeners, and I do welcome some of the very positive feedback that we've gotten. But I think we've got to try to spread the word, because in my view, this, you know, I'm an evangelist for the cause here. We want to stop giving our money to Wall Street, because Wall Street doesn't make us money. It takes our money right? Wall Street is not there to help us. And we want to be able to try to spread the word. And so what that means is trying to get our message out to more and more people. So if you know people you think would benefit from what we're talking about and joining our community like this, make sure you do that. Give us a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show, and I will see you next time. 
this is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. 